BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is guitar legend George Benson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast, joined by John Hughes per usual. John, how are you? Hey, Rich. I'm okay, you know, here uh, avoiding the snow in Southern California. Sorry. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's a winter wonderland here in Nashville. It's, it's, it's a sight to behold. I bet. <laughs> it's chilly. Well, hopefully we'll get through it this week and everybody who's lost power gets power back. Feel for those folks. But we got some music to warm the hearts of the nation. Exactly. I kind of missed the appeal of being snowed in and putting on a good album and just really absorbing it. So I do miss that. And fortunately, we've got a lot going on. One of my favorites, New Order, has announced the release of Education, Entertainment, Recreation, a very New Order title. This is a special performance. It's their only UK show of 2018 at London's Alexandra Palace and the first live show released on Blu-ray from the band's now-established lineup of Bernard Sumner, Stephen Morris, Gillian Gilbert, Phil Cunningham, and Tom Chapman. Now, this mixes New Order classics, some songs from their latest album, which was uh, Music Complete, which was in 2015, which seems like an eternity ago. I know, doesn't it? Right. And of course, you know, covers of some Joy Division tunes as well. It's coming out on May 7th in a lot of formats, including two CD audio, two CD audio plus the film on Blu-ray, three LPs and a limited edition box set featuring all these formats, along with a book and art prints. This all comes out on May 7th and it's available for pre-order now. Something for the New Order fans to look forward to for sure. Yeah, uh, by the way, Fleetwood Mac fans are going to love this one. Fleetwood Mac Live Super Deluxe Edition. Now, Live was originally released in 1980, but this release gives the band's live debut a much-deserved encore with a new 3-CD 2LP collection that features a remastered version of the original release on both 180-gram vinyl and CD, plus more than an hour of unreleased live music recorded between 1977 and 1982, Primo Mac on the yeah. third CD. Now, this set also includes a bonus 7-inch single featuring previously unreleased demos for Fireflies and One More Night. That's very cool. Yeah. A special tour edition is also available for pre-order exclusively at rhino.com. Only place you can get this version. It's limited to 1,000 copies, and this includes the three CDs, the two LPs, the 7-inch, 
plus some replica ephemera from the era, including a, a, a ticket, a backstage pass, uh, a print ad, button, sticker, iron-on patch. This is for the hardcores. It's only at rhino.com. But all the versions are out on April 9th. My folks brought home that record when it first came out. They were huge Fleetwood Mac fans, and I remember them cranking that. It's got a nice cross-section of music from even before when Lindsay and Stevie were in the band. They played, you know some great versions of some of the older songs. So Mac fans got to check that out, especially with the added content. It's really going to be cool to check out. Yeah. I think, I think it's important to remember that there's some stuff for you, Peter Green hardcores out there that are still holding on. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Black History Month continues with a host of great releases this Friday, the 19th, including two vinyl releases that are really important. Aretha Franklin, Young, Gifted, and Black. This one comes on burnt orange vinyl. It's beautiful. And a personal favorite of mine, Sheila E. in The Glamorous Life. This comes on teal vinyl. You know, everybody loves The Glamorous Life, but I'm all about The Bell of St. Mark. Um, Awesome single. And we also have a bunch of digital releases, including uh, stuff from Jimmy and Vela, Rasan Roland Kirk, Nina Simone, Adina Howard, just new stuff that's never been digitized before. And it's going to be available this Friday, the 19th, plus a ton more titles to celebrate Black History Month as well. And you can check them all out at rhino.com. That's right. New titles released for Black History Month every Friday in the month of February. We're, We're leaning in. We're doing it. Thanks very much, John. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Rich. See you guys. Well, today's guest, guitarist George Benson, has had a long and storied career, starting off in the jazz world, cutting his teeth with the legendary brother Jack McDuff, and segueing into popular music in the second half of the 70s that led to multiple Grammy Awards and platinum album sales. His album Breezin signaled his arrival onto FM radio and is one of the featured albums in Rhino's Black History Month lineup this year. George filled us in on his beginnings, the jump from jazz to pop, and the skinny on some of his biggest hits. George, thanks very much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast today. Pleasure to have you. You grew up in Pittsburgh, is that right? That's right. That's my town, my hometown. Born and raised. Excellent. How'd you get involved with music? I imagine it started pretty early for you. I guess I was born into it. My mother's nickname was Sing. Oh, how about that? They called her that because she was always singing something or humming something. So they just called her Sing. And she was young when I was born. I was born right after she turned 15 years old. Really? Yeah, she had just turned 15. And she took me to all the movies and stuff like that. And they had some, what they call tent churches. They used to, uh, they used to set up church for a week or two in my, or a weekend in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, there's mud floors because the rain would come in and muddy to join up. But wow. she'd take me to them, so I heard gospel music. Uh-huh. And all the other churches around town, she took me to those, too. What I am glad is that uh, the influence it had on me was mostly a um, vocal, half-spiritual kind of thing. The singing itself was big time, 
because um, everybody sang. They used to take us down to downtown and we used to stand in front of the department stores and sing Christmas carols or else just religious songs. What was your first instrument? Was it guitar? No, I think I tried to play the violin in school and uh, they kicked me out of class when they found out I wasn't reading the music. <laughs> I was playing by ear. They asked me to play a song and I knew it so well. I didn't need no music in front of me to play that, you know. Right. I could hear it, you know. And yeah. when they found that out, the teachers were not happy with that. So, How did you learn to play jazz guitar when you were starting out? Did you have any favorite records that you learned note for note? Or what was your, what was your approach to learning guitar? I guess the greatest thing that happened to me was when my mother met my stepfather. I was seven years old. And um, I was known around Pittsburgh as little Georgie Benson, the singer. But he loved guitar. And I remember we were moving from what you might call the, uh, the maid's quarters for my grandfather's hotel, which used to be the Benson Hotel. It was uh -huh. only like a three-story building. And uh, in back, they had the place where the, the housekeepers used to live. Well, when my grandfather died, his children moved into the guest house. That was my mother. And, uh, and her two sisters and a brother. We lived in that two-story building, crowded into that one guest house. So when she met my stepfather, we kicked everybody out of the hotel and moved into the hotel. So the hotel started to get a little rundown. Nobody wanted to stay in anymore, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we moved into that, and that was the first electricity we had. Wow. So... My stepfather got his electric guitar out of the pawn shop with the amplifier and he plugged it in and boy, that, the effect that had on me as a seven-year-old was amazing because we grew up early, prior to that with ice boxes, you know, uh, an ice box which you had to put ice in every day or two, whatever it was. And coal used to supply the heat for the house. Right. And so now we moved to the house that had electricity. Boy, that was miracle stuff. And when I found out the sound that went through that wire coming out of the guitar over to a box on the other side of the room, which was the amplifier, of course, and the sounds that came out of that amp were like magical, you know? I was hooked from that day. And that was, he played Benny Goodman records all day. Benny Goodman and the other records he played were George Shearing. George Shearing was very popular at the time. And so I fell in love with that sound that Charlie Christian used to make on the guitar. That became my standard. So he was your, he was your first inspiration. You really dove into his playing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. something special. He was not normal. Because the only way you could get that kind of playing was from Charlie Christian. And you had to play the Benny Goodman swing record, which was were really uh, well done and uh, well played by Benny Goodman and all those expert musicians he had with him. In the beginning, my hands were too small to play guitar. So my stepfather taught me to play the ukulele. That's how I ended ah. up playing the U, because I was only seven. Seven was, a, was an, uh, an incredible period in my life because you had to be seven years old before you could sell newspapers. So my first day at a newspaper stand, which I was late getting there. So I couldn't take my ukulele upstairs and leave it in my room. 
I took it to the newspaper stand with me. And after I sold one newspaper, one paper, I got a penny for selling it, but I got a 20 cent tip because the guy gave me a quarter and the newspaper was only a nickel. <laughs> wow. So I, I ran into the drugstore right next door to where the paper stand was and he gave me my ukulele back. And I was standing there looking at the candy in the counter, getting ready to, you know, trying to decide what I wanted to eat. And uh, somebody saw me there and they said, hey, little boy, can you play that thing? Referring to the ukulele. Yeah. I jumped right on it and started playing one of them way up tempo things, you know, you know, and yeah. sing. And a crowd came around. <laughs> and naturally, I couldn't stop playing. To They were reaching in their pocket for money, but I couldn't stop playing to collect. At that time, my cousin came in the door and he saw him reaching in their pocket, so he took his baseball cap off and went around the audience and collected a half full of quarters and 50 cent pieces. And I guess he was my first manager, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. So was that your first and last day selling papers when you realized how much you could make busking? That's right. I only sold newspapers one day. <laughs> in my life. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And sold one newspaper. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Oh, boy, that's funny. Great story. Fast forward, how did you hook up with brother Jack McDuff? Man, that was an incredible hookup. I was in a lot of trouble with my first wife. I I got married very early. We were both too young. I was 18. She was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. I know what we get. We went to get married right around the corner from where we were staying, where her mother lived. I had moved in with her her folks. And so we walked around the corner to the preacher's house, and he married us. And then he called me. He said, Mr. Benson, let me speak to you for a minute. So I went into another room with him, and he said, you know, it used to cost $5 to get married. Now it's $10. I said, well, I don't have any more money. He said, well, you can owe it to me, which I never did go back and pay it. So maybe I'm only half married. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's how I got married. That's how poor we were. That was the beginning, and that led one problem to another. And so me and my first wife did not get along well. We ended up in court. And I was getting ready to go to jail that day. I never forget when I met Jack. And how I met him was the night before I met him, I walked into this place I used to visit a lot to hear live music. They used to let me in, even though I was too young to be in the bar. They said, well, uh, Georgie, stand in the corner and don't make a sound. You'll be all right. Don't approach that bar and don't move from that spot because it was illegal for me to be in the place. Sure. So I uh, did what the lady asked for. Her name was Bertie. Uh, she, she ran the Hurricane uh, Music Bar in Pittsburgh. It was an R&B house. And so um, there was a band there called, um, let me see, Don Gardner and Dee Dee Ford. And Don Gardner was a, a great drummer, and he had an incredible voice, too. Well, between sets, uh, he could tell that I was under stress. And he said, George, why don't you go out and try out for the Jack McDuff gig? And I said, no, man. I said, I I can't play with that band. I'm not good enough to play with that band. He said, yes, you are, man. I said, no, not no better than that. Because I was about, you know, I was 19 years old. Yeah. 
And I had only been going to jam sessions for, you know, a year or two, but I still hadn't caught on because that wasn't the way I made my living. I made my living playing R&B songs and copying the jukebox. And so I told him, well, I can't go anyway because I ain't got no money to get out there. He was on the other side of town where he was playing. But my father, my natural father, was in the house and he heard us, heard that conversation. So he ran out in the streets and collected 50 cents. And he came back, he said, he was, he was tuckered out, tired, because he had been running, I guess. He said, now, hey man, now you can go out there and try out for that gig. I said, good, Dad, you can come out with me, man, because it cost 25 cents on the streetcar, right? Yeah. He said, no, you're going to need 25 cents to get back with. So he didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> so I went out, and the amazing thing is they were on their last set. And the girls, who always loved little Georgie Benson, they loved to hear me sing. To them, I was not a guitar player. And to me, I wasn't a guitar player yet either. But I was especially known as little Georgie Benson from Pittsburgh. So when the girls saw me in the house, they started screaming, oh, Georgie Benson's in the house. And they kept screaming until Jack McDuff recognized. He said, I don't know who this Georgie Benson is, but if you want to come up and play somewhere, just come on up. So I went up on the bandstand and I played one song. And Jack said, hey man, I like what I heard, but I need to hear more. He said, can you come down to the hotel tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'll be there. So I went down. Remember, this was just before my hearing, which was coming up in front of a judge. Yeah. So when Jack heard me play, he had one of those little things called a melodica, you know, that you it was a keyboard, but you blew, you plugged it in. So yeah. he, he was playing that and I played the guitar and he said, wait a minute. He stopped and he got on the phone and he called his manager in New York. He said, man, I found this guitar player and he's only, he said, how old are you? I said, 19. He's only 19 years old, man. I'm bringing him to New York. And I said, wait, wait a minute, Mr. McDuff. I forgot to tell you, man, I'm going to jail today. <laughs> <laughs> He said, man, what do you mean? I told him the story. He said, will money help? I said, I really don't know. So he gave me $35. I put it in my shirt pocket and I went to the hearing. I told the judge the story. I said, judge, if you give me an opportunity to break, I'll be leaving town. You won't hear of me no more. I'll be gone because I got an offer for a job. Take me on the road. He said, sounds like a good deal to me. He told my wife, why don't you sign this paper and let him go out and do what he's got to do and release him from this. Let him pay across the court and release him from the because he didn't hurt you or anything. So, so she said, she knew I didn't have any money. She told the judge, if he can pay the cost of court, I'll sign the paper. She knew I didn't have any money. The judge said, son, can you pay the cost of court? I said, how much does it cost the court? He said, $27. I reached in my shirt pocket and pulled out this $35 and I paid the $27. Oh, man. Well, she messed up when she saw that money. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I left town. I went down with Jack, packed my little one uh, suit of clothes I had, and took my guitar and left town with Brother Jack McDuff. There's a video of you playing 
with Jack in Antibes, France in like 1964. You guys are putting out a ton of sound for a quartet. You're about 21 years old there. And it seems to me your technique was just about nearly fully formed. At least it sounds like it. And I mean, you must've learned so much playing with him and touring. I had been, at that time, I had been on the road with Jack for about a year. And, um, and yeah, my playing started, he turned me into a guitar player. And how he did that was, every night he criticized me. Sometimes he grabbed the mic and talked about me like a dog in front of the audience. And he criticized me and he cussed me out if I played the wrong chord changes. It was hell. (laughs) (laughs) But here's what made the difference. One day I saw a critique of the band and they called me a guitarist not a guitar player. I said, wow, I'm not a guitar player. I'm a guitarist, man. <laughs> what a prestigious sound that is, you know? Yeah, sure. I said, man, to myself, I'm a guitarist, man. So it made me do something I hated, practice every day. I started practicing and practicing and practicing. And everything started to improve. And that's when you heard me with that light suit on we had at yep. the French Riviera. That was a special period in our life. We were playing blues one and eight with the Red Holloway and Joe Dukes. That was an incredible uh, quartet. <laughs> still have that Les Paul? No, I wish it did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you could buy a house with that thing now for sure. One thing that I noticed back then too, even then, your tone is and was so smooth. Were you conscious about your tone from an early point? And what did you do to arrive at the sound that you heard in your head? I didn't really understand how guys got those beautiful sounds. I thought it was a combination of guitar and amplifier. So I thought if I got an amplifier that had a lot more bass to it, round tones, and that would straighten out my problems. Not realizing that it's, a lot of it comes from your hands. Sure. And how you, you know, your technique and how you approach it. What kind of sound are you looking for? You have to shape it with the guitar first and then hope that the amplifier can reproduce what you're thinking, what you're hearing. Right. So, so I started doing that. I asked questions for everybody. My friends were people who were very popular and people who, the world did not know about who became superstars later, such as in the case of Pat Martino. He was just a kid when I met him. He was 17 years old, and he was one of the masters yeah. of guitar at 17. Wow. So, and I hung around Grant Green, and I loved Kenny Burrell, but I didn't see a lot oh, of yeah. him. And then I became friends with people like Tal Farlow, man. Can you imagine that? Well, the very fact that he would even talk to me, you know, like because he was like a god on the guitar, you know. Yeah. And then Les Paul, I became friends with him, and he told me his story, how he loaned money to uh, the Mercer, uh, uh, Mercer, who started uh, Capitol Records after he discovered Nat King Cole, and uh, and how he designed the 
the echo chambers or reverb units up under the parking lot. He was an incredible person, man. What's your approach to playing changes? How do you conceptualize that? Once I heard that there were four chord changes, basic chord changes, majors, minors, and augments, and diminishes. That's what they told me. As I examined them, I began to realize, actually, those, there's only two. There's only two chord changes. And I find out about by condensing those so-called four chord changes into two, man, everything moved along a lot smoother, a lot faster, because I didn't have a, to worry about the four. Which one of these four changes am I playing on now? There was only two. Right. Majors and minors were the basic ones. The rest okay. of the diminishes were additional notes, you know. Right. And so um, I didn't worry about the additional notes. I wanted to get that major thought and the minor thought in. It's either a major or a minor here, you know. Yeah. Let me get that first, and then we'll worry about the rest of them later. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I began to, to think about the guitar in those terms. I found that it increased my speed tremendously. But it was my stepfather who on a few occasions, and he was a guitar player, but he wasn't adept at it. He wasn't adept at it. He wasn't good at it. He just loved the sound of the guitar. And he wanted to be Charlie Christian. And he, in his mind, it was never going to be a guitar player who could touch Charlie Christian. So he tried his best to imitate Charlie Christian. But there was something about the guitar that he understood that I did not. So after being on the road for two, three, four years, I came home thinking I had accomplished, you know, some wonderful things, you know, started making my own records. I was playing in front of him one day, showing off, you know, just showing him what I had accomplished being on the road. He said, he said, yeah, you're playing fast, but I can't hear nothing you're playing here. There's no clarity there. There's no understanding. I can't make out what it is you're playing. I said, what do you mean you can't make out what I'm playing? Then listen to what I'm playing. He said, yeah, it's fast, but it don't mean nothing. Sure enough, I found out that I was leaving some notes out. I changed the stroke in favor of something that I could play, not playing the correct one, it, keeping my downstrokes consistent or the up, down and upstrokes consistently. And so once I realized that I was doing that, I said, man, my dad was right. I'm going to straighten this out, man. I'm thinking I'm playing one thing and I ain't playing nothing here. What you just said about, you know, your stepdad telling you that stuff, kind of goes back to this adage that I heard a long time ago, and it doesn't matter where you are in your guitar journey, and it doesn't matter where somebody else is in their guitar journey, you can still learn something from anybody that's at any level of competency on the guitar. That's the one thing I found by sitting down with other guitar players. Even the guy who had little guitar education, his way of hearing things and approaching things might be completely different than yours. And I'm always amazed at how, what they come up with. I said, well, now why did, how did he ever think of playing that like that? Because in my mind, there's only one way to play it. Right, 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 sure. You get, you get stuck in a rut sometimes. Yeah, so this guy would play it, or the, the different player would play it differently. And I said, well, how did he come up with that? I said, you know what? There's a lot to this instrument. 
and you ain't gonna never stop learning. So, and I didn't give up on people. I said, man, I can learn something from anybody. I stopped being a teacher. I had a few students in my life, just a few. And they're all masters today. They can all outplay me. <laughs> but, but the point is, that's how I learned. I felt guilty after trying to teach them, and they would always come up with something better than what I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's take a song like The Cooker off your George Benson Cookbook album. It's a showcase for your absolutely wicked jazz chops. <laughs> You're adept at a variety of styles and approaches. So if you contrast what you're playing on the cooker with Breezin, which centers around a simple melody, these two approaches appeal to a wide variety of fans. Do you think that both of these approaches give you the same sense of satisfaction when you play, or do they scratch different itches for you? It depends on the time period. There was a time when the faster you played, I call it the John McLaughlin era. Okay, sure. The faster you play, the more the guitar players admire you. So, so I developed uh, an attitude about playing fast. So all our songs were up-tempo songs. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Sure. And uh, that became for that era. But one day they did a blindfold test with Wes Montgomery. And I think it was um, uh, Downbeat Magazine. And instantly he recognized who it was. He said, man, yeah, that's that guitar and baritone thing. That's the George Benson uh, guitar and baritone. He said, that's an interesting sound. He said, man, when that cat slows down, he's going to be a monster. <laughs> I didn't even know what he was talking about. Right. <laughs> you know, but that's what reason was. It was a relaxed version of myself, not being nervous and not trying to prove anything and not trying to double up on all the notes and play super fast. Just telling the story and letting the story develop as we went along. story. It's just a means of education. Uh, uh, communication, I'm sorry. It's a means of communication. So you're telling a story. How do you want to tell it? You want to start, you know, you, is it an exciting story? Is it something that's dead beat and you want to try to beef it up? Then you have to do something to it, you know? Yeah. So uh, if, do I want to play it like, um, you know, like uh, Barney Kessel, which would be hard to do, but uh you can, if you want to go take that approach, but you're not going to get any big credits. If they recognize that you got it from Barney Kessel, then you're not going to get the credit that you sure. should have gotten. Um, 
And Barney being one of the favorites, being one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Yeah, uh, of course. You recognize it right away. And a lot of people know his style and his playing. But um, I stop my students from worrying about the music. And I think that's what a lot of people do. They worry about the music. I said, man, the world does not depend on what me and you are doing, are doing here. We're sitting here discussing some strings stretched out over a piece of wood with an amplifier in front of us. It's not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not meat and potatoes, man. All it is is a discussion we're having, trying to find a different way or a better way or how to make it better and easier for ourselves. And once I got that point across, they begin to understand and they begin to like themselves and to like what it is they were trying to accomplish. And they moved up inch by inch like we all do in our arts, you know. I've always loved the guitar. So I never, th I thought that the guitar couldn't do anything wrong. So I just played, you know, I played and the more I played it, the more I loved the instrument because I found out how flexible it was and what you could accomplish with it. I said, man, I picked the right instrument. I got to put it in the case, take it with me take it out and pluck on it anytime I get ready. <laughs> yeah, it's a bottomless well. You never find you never find the bottom. There's always something to investigate. Well, Breezin, it's your 15th album. It's your Warner Brothers debut. Safe to say this one changed your life. Number 1 on the jazz, R&B, and pop charts, triple platinum, nominated for 6 Grammys. What led to your shift into the Breezin era style of songs and playing for you? A tremendous amount of events. Actually, they were simple, but they're tremendous in the scope and what they accomplished. I used to go up to Boston and I would always, while I was, you know, to play at the jazz workshop on Boston Street, if you've ever been there. But I would stop at Berkeley School of Music because it was just such an incredible idea that people could actually go there and and learn to play jazz music and become music, accomplished musician. So I would stop by there. While I was there in Boston, I would also stop by the music store. It was called EU Wurlitzer. And the cat's name was Bob, who used to manage the store. He said, Joe, it's coming here, man. I got something you gotta hear. So I went over and he put on a polytone amplifier. Wow. The first of its kind. He said, okay. you gotta hear this amplifier. So I plugged into him play. I said, man, this thing is tremendous. He said, hold on a minute, man. He called the guy, Tommy Gamina in California. He said, man, I got George Benson here, man, and he's playing your amplifier. So I talked to him for a few minutes. He said, man, when you come out this way, I'll give you one. Just stop by my store. And so it was in my mind, hey, the cat's going to give me an amplifier, you know. That was in my mind. If I ever get to California again. Yeah, you're right. So... In the meantime, my house, I was living in the Bronx then. I had a recording studio in the basement, but I had under my steps going up to the second floor, I had a closet that was full of guitars. One day, a young Caucasian fellow, boy, I guess he was about 20 years old. He knocked on my door. He had a brand new case in his hand. He said, Mr. Benson, are you Mr. George Benson? I said, yeah. He said, they said, you might be interested in my, this guitar. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm gonna look at it anyway. Yeah, I ain't buying no guitar, I can't afford it. So he opened up the case. I said, yeah, let me see it. 
and it was a brand new Johnny Smith guitar. Beautiful, you know, blonde finish. Yeah. That man is beautiful, man. It was a heck of a kiddish, man. This cat, this is one of the bravest cats I ever met in my life. <laughs> His girlfriend sent him to her former boyfriend's house to get her guitar, which she had bought him. I said, man, that's something I wouldn't try to do. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he said, when he knocked on the guy's door, the guy said, no, man, not my guitar. He said, yep, you got to give it up. Give it up. Because he didn't play guitar himself. Yeah. But, uh, so he took the guitar and he tried to take it back to um, the cats down on the 48th Street in New York, the top store. Sure. They, they, they made him an offer. He didn't like it, so he came out and tried to sell it, tried to sell it to me. He said, well, man, can't you give me some? I said, well, as you can see, I showed him my closet, opened the door, and guitars were falling out of the closet. I said, as you can see, I don't need no guitar. He said, can't you give me something for it, man? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $550. I know the guitar was worth $850, right? Yeah. So I offered him, he said, well, that's $50 more than they offered me down at, uh, on 48th Street. So I bought it for $550. Now, I was in the middle of this contract with Warners on my way out to LA to make the record, which you now know is Breezing. And something told me, take that guitar with you, man, that new one. You might, there might be something you want to play on. So I snatched it up at the last second on the way out the door. And then I stopped by that store of uh, Tommy Gamina, the polytone guy. They were yeah. making amplifiers one at a time. <laughs> That's how raw they were there. Wow. So when I stopped by, I said, well, man, he said, when are you going to need the amp? I said, well, I'm in the studio, Capitol Records. Can you have it there by noon? He said, yeah, I'll have it there by noon. So now I had a brand new guitar I never played before and an amplifier I never played before. And uh, the first thing we did was... Um, sound like the George Benson they had been hearing because they never heard me play through a Gibson <laughs> uh, Johnny Smith and a polytone amplifier. Yeah. That was a totally new sound. And I was afraid to play very fast because I didn't know the guitar that well yet. <laughs> so awesome. Wes Montgomery had his thing. When he slows down, he's going to be a monster. Right. Yeah, full circle. How about that? That's great. Well, Breezin obviously was a big hit, and you still hear it today. Uh, you had another hit off that record, too, This Masquerade. Great example of you scat singing in unison with yourself, which is one of your signature moves for sure. How did you develop this technique? I tried it with Creed Taylor at the CTI Records, and I got laughed out of the out of the studio. In the middle of the song, they broke it up. They stopped in the middle of the recording. Nah, that ain't working. Nah, that's no good. That won't work, man. Let's do something else. But with Tommy LaPuma, 
at Warner Brothers Records. He didn't particularly trust it either, but he let me do it. He put the worst microphone you could imagine up in front of me. And the reason why is because he, they hadn't planned on using the vocal. He said, I'm not putting the vocal in this album. This instrumentally, this album is a monster. I'm not breaking it up with a vocal. I don't care how good it is. Yeah, right. So he was not going to use it. So they put up terrible. It was an Electro Boys 555. Lost in a man's Now, while we were playing that back, Bobby Womack walks in because he's getting ready to do breezing with me. He's going to bring a new idea. Bobby came in and he heard the playback of this masquerade. He said, man, who in the hell in here got a voice like that? And Tommy the Boomer said, that's George singing. He said, yeah, but I thought George was a guitar player. He said, well, yeah, he's a guitar player, but he's also a singer. That was the beginning. Everybody who heard it said pretty much the same thing. On Broadway from your 78 album, Weekend in L.A. hit number seven on the Billboard Hot 100, number two on the Soul Chart. This one's unusual because it's a live track. It's uncommon to have a, a live track be as big of a hit like this. Did it surprise you? Man, shocked me like you wouldn't believe. Because I did not want to destroy that song. I, I used the word destroy because that's what I said to Tommy LaPuma when he asked me to record it. He said, you won't destroy it, man. I said, yeah, but it's one of my favorite songs. I don't want to you know, experiment with that. He said, man, people will love you doing that. And the thing that bothered me the most was that line that said, and I can play this here guitar. I said, who am I to assume that I can play guitar, you know? <laughs> yeah. He said, man, that ain't even funny, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we did it, and I said, let me live with it. And I invented a line that... Uh, um, Quincy Jones turned me on to. He said, you know, George, years ago, everything used to be a one-bar phrase. Now everything is a two-bar phrase. I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And then I listened to the song. I said, oh, on Broadway, it was a very simple bomb, 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 bomb. They said a neon bomb, bomb. That's a one-bar. It repeats every bar. Yeah. So I changed it from bum, 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 bum. Now that's the second bar. So it's a two bar phrase now. And then yeah. I put a staccato on it. Boom, 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 boom. That made it danceable. And then that opened the song up and it was incredible. They say that I won't last too long. comment I got from my own band. George, you know the song don't go like that, man. That's not the way the song goes. I said to him, man, 
you weren't even born yet when the song came out. So let me do this, man. <laughs> George, thank you so much for your time today. Wish we had more, but a great talking with you. And uh, we hope to see you on the road after this pandemic clears up. Man, I'm going to come down and hang out with you in Nashville. I love Nashville. We'll go, we'll go get some hot chicken. Oh, yeah. Turn your love around. Don't you turn me down. I can show you how. Turn your love around. Turn your love around. And the girl became a woman. Don't you turn me down. Every woman needs a man. YouTube is absolutely loaded with amazingly excellent videos of George strutting his stuff. I highly recommend surfing around and seeing what comes up for you, but definitely search for George Benson with Brother Jack McDuff to catch that set from Antibes, France in the mid-60s. It shows how fantastic George was from the get-go. Well, it's February, and it's Black History Month, and I've got a cool new single release to drop on you before we sign off. Roberta Flack was in the studio back in 1971 recording her third album, Quiet Fire. She and the band got into a jam, and they cut a cover of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Roberta later changed the lyrics, and the jam became Go Up Moses. That was included on Quiet Fire. Recently, Roberta's manager was going through Roberta's home archives and found a cassette rough mix of What's Going On, probably a reference tape that Roberta took home from the studio to listen to. Rhino recently searched through the tape vaults, found the original reel-to-reel session tapes, and luckily the original What's Going On vocal was still there, and they completed a new mix. Check out this clip. You can find the Roberta Flack version of What's Going On at all of your usual streaming outlets. Stay well out there. See you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.